This week on the Back Table Podcast. Um, but on a daily basis, really, PA is is an exciting part of our practice. Um, we have built a strong referral pattern, uh, primarily actually from primary care physicians, family practice doctors, and and really gone the non-traditional urology route. Maybe that's uh, related to the fact that over the maybe seven years or so we've been performing it is that building those relationships with urology have been challenging and difficult, but allow educating the, you know, primary care doctors have, has really proven successful. And so, you know, we've used that to really build and um, sustain our, our uh, PAE practice. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's podcast with Backtable, your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinet. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. Today we're talking prostatic artery embolization or PAE. Uh, and I'm thrilled to welcome Ari Isaacson and Sandy Bagla, two names that are well-known to anyone who has followed the evolution of this procedure. I wanted to briefly share my own experience and introduce what I believe to be the best opportunity available for IRs looking to adopt this, you know, aside from repeating fellowship. Um, as a fellow at Penn, I did one of these and only one, and I did it with Tim Clark, who is perhaps the most talented IR I've ever worked with. And before the case, he asked me to consider the breadth of what we offer in our specialty using a scale of difficulty from one to 10, with one being the easiest and 10 the hardest. He said, UFE is maybe a five, TIPS is a seven, and PA is a nine. Uh, and sure enough, the ensuing case is a slog and one of the hardest ones I ever did. So I kind of put this on the back burner um, after I entered practice until an opportunity a few months ago to observe Dr. Isaacson. Uh, and this dramatically changed my approach to this procedure, dropping it from a nine to something I'm comfortable approaching on my own. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to building on this at Stream, which is an upcoming one-day course on PAE directed by Ari and Sonny. It's the most comprehensive overview currently offered anywhere. Uh, and based on my experience with Ari, I'm recommending this to anyone interested in this procedure. I'm even dragging some of my partners with me. Uh, it's going to be in D.C. on January 13th, 2018. We're going to discuss the details of the course later on, but I encourage our listeners to register at streampae.com while you still can. Hey, Mike, I think, yes. stream, I think stream is going to be really strong this year. I just got to say that. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> I can't wait. It's going to be really strong stream, uh, you know, one and done, no uh, interruptions. Not weak. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, I can uh, focus on our guest. And uh, If you wouldn't mind, starting with you, Sonny, I was hoping you could just share your story of how and when you guys crossed paths and how you got from there to becoming the foremost authorities on a procedure that at the time wasn't routinely done really anywhere outside of Brazil. Sure. So uh, it's an interesting pathway that Ari and I, pro- we probably talk uh, very little about how we cross paths, but uh, we tend to talk a lot, maybe three, four or five times a day, uh, well before the stream meeting, from everything from prostate embolization to, to hemorrhoid embolization, adenomyosis, you name it. We've We've crossed paths over the years uh, a few times, uh, and most notably, as you pointed out, in the PAE world. Uh, a number of years ago, Ari might, might have a better memory of how we crossed paths. I sort of remember an email introduction uh, that Ari might have sent uh, when he was first finishing his fellowship or first starting at UNC. Ari, correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe you can figure out and go back in time and figure out how we first, how we first crossed paths. Yes, yeah, Sonny. Um... So this is how it happened. So I was a very fresh uh, attending uh, just out of fellowship. And I had decided that I was going to try to make PAE my research focus. And so I was in the midst of uh, trying to put a trial together and applying for an IDE. 
And Sonny had already published a, he, he published the only U.S. study on PAE. And so I kind of looked up, I said, who is this guy that's published already? And I saw his picture and he looked like, you know, he was like 22 years old. And, uh, and I said, but he looks like a nice guy. And I thought, why don't I send him an email and just say, what if we got all of the people who are involved in PAU together at SIR and we sat down and tried to put our heads together and see how we could advance this procedure quicker. And to be honest, I didn't, I didn't expect Sonny to reply or anything. You know, I thought maybe I'd get like a, a courteous uh, buzz off kid type thing, but, um, <laughs> but, but Sonny wrote back and said, Hey, that's a good idea. Ended up calling his cell phone. We talked about it for a while and uh, we actually made that meeting happen. I say Sonny actually made that meeting happen uh, at SIR. What was it? About three years ago. Um, when we all got together in a, in a fancy hotel room and talked about PAE, but that's how it started. And really, um, Sonny and I, uh, we kind of each bring something to the table as far as our relationship goes. And it's, it's resulted in some good research and, um, just some good opportunities for us both. Yeah, that's a great summary of it, Ari. It's, uh, we always, we always say our relationship is, is not just a friendship, but it's hashtag collaboration. I like it. The, uh, the Starsky and Hutch of prostatic artery embolization. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if you guys wouldn't mind, just tell us where you are now and what's the status of PAE in your current practice. Like, how has it evolved and, and what are your future directions? So we've we've completed one clinical trial on PAE at, at University of North Carolina. Um, and we've created a clinical practice now for PAE. And we, we've been doing that for a couple of years. Um, we are excited about the indication that uh, Merit recently got for Embosphere. It has opened some doors as far as um, being able to advertise and being able to bill Medicare. And, um, and so um, through some efforts uh, to collaborate with urologists at UNC, I've, I've developed a little bit of a referral pattern now, which is uh, very exciting to me. And, um, and so now uh, we have uh, a pretty good clinical practice going on for PAE. Uh, Sonny and I are also about to embark on another clinical trial together for PAE um, using uh, LCB Lumi to perform PAE, um, and we're excited about that as well. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. I caught wind of that. Uh, I'd be really interested to see how that goes. Um, what about you, Sonny? Uh, what role does PAE play in your current practice? Yeah, so PAE is, uh, you know, like like Ari mentioned, uh, at our practice at Vasco City of Virginia, it's it's really performed primarily on a clinical basis. Um, we are excited as well for this, for this future study we're doing with Lumi beads to, um, look at a number of, of issues that we don't really know yet about PAE. And hopefully we'll learn a lot more with this clinical study we're performing. Um, but on a daily basis, really PAE is, is an exciting part of our practice. Um, we have built a strong referral pattern, uh, primarily actually from primary care physicians, family practice doctors, and and really gone the non-traditional urology route. Maybe that's uh, related to the fact that over the maybe seven years or so we've been performing it is that building those relationships with urology have been challenging and difficult, but allow educating the, you know, primary care doctors have, has really proven successful. And so, you know, we've used that to really build and um, sustain our, our uh, PAE practice. That's fascinating. Uh, actually, I remember a couple of years ago, you actually had a really cool website advertising the procedure. It was actually one of the first I had seen. I was very jealous. Um, but, <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, you guys 
brought up an important point, and that's, you know, the, the status of PE and the literature and, and where it's going. And so, uh, you know, I was hoping you guys could, uh, you know, maybe let me know what uh, what dominoes still need to fall, uh, you know, from the standpoint of data besides long-term efficacy before this starts to rival TERP for all routine patients. Jerry, are you going to take that one first? Yeah, sure. Um I mean, I, th- I think right now, I think I, the biggest obstacle that I see as far as the clinical practice growing is really insurance coverage. Okay. Um, you know, w- we need private payers to to get on board, and that's kind of what we're working on right now at UNC. And I think really what anyone who wants to grow a practice should be working on. But obviously, there is there are holes in the data that need to be filled. But as far as um, as as PAE growing, I think the insurance coverage issue is really the, the most important obstacle. The other thing I should say is that I don't know that PAE will ever become as used as TERP. Uh, okay. Some of us want to believe that, but I think PAE is, is going to be a definite option for people, and it, it's, it's going to have its advantages with certain subpopulations, but I think it'll kind of just be another option after or adi- in addition to TERP. Now, Ari, when I was a fellow, um, when we had these these patients, we would actually do most of the pre-procedure workup and the follow-up, but you know, I was really impressed with the system that you all have developed at UNC, this collaborative partnership with urology that's you know, it's both innovative and it seemed to be ideal for both patients and physicians. Could you share with us how that works, like how it got started, and basically you know, how you guys as a team manage the patient before and after the procedure? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so from the very beginning, I, I didn't want my interest in PAE to be a threat to urology. I wanted to try to approach it in a collaborative way and get them on board so that they could see the benefit of it for them in the long run. And so for the, from the very beginning, when I started the clinical trial, I, I asked one of the urologists to be my co-investigator. And I had every patient who we enrolled in the trial see urology for about four or five visits uh, associated with the trial, including a cystoscopy. And so they're getting a good volume of business from this trial. Um, that kind of made it a legitimate treatment in their eyes, and, and they got to see firsthand the results of it. So when patients did better, they were coming in and seeing urologists, and the urologists were, you know, it's hard to be skeptical when you're seeing the patients yourself. Sure. Uh, um, and then I, I, was, I was able to present um, all the data and, and the background of the procedure at Urology Grand Rounds at UNC, and so that helped kind of spread it as well. And um, since then, um, they've just become, uh, I guess, believers in a sense that they've seen the data, they've seen the patients, and so they understand the, the value of it and have started sending patients my way. I also thought you made an interesting point when I visited that, you know, this allows the urologist to retain patients who otherwise might have been lost to follow-up, and so they really get to keep, um, you know, their patient population, um, you know, Getting across this bridge with urology has been my own you know, greatest challenge. Uh, you know, since I'm not doing any clinical trials in, in private practice, uh, do you have any recommendations for how to approach uh, a urology practice to help you know push this as a collaborative partnership? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Sonny could probably speak to this a little better because he functions out of private practice. But I-, I think the key when you're starting out is to really emphasize the holes that you can fill with the procedure. Okay. And so you don't want to approach a urologist and say... I have a treatment that's far better than anything else you can offer for BPH. Um, but rather, you'd want to say, you know, I have a treatment that can treat hematuria. Um, I have a treatment that can treat very large prostates that you may not want to terp. Um, I have a treatment that can be useful in the setting of coagulopathy or um, 
uh, being on uh, medications. So, you know, I think that's kind of the the emphasis you want to go with. Okay. Um, and I, Sonny could probably speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, I would love to hear that, Sonny. I'd also like to hear for the patients that you do get from primary care physicians, if you are having them see urology before the procedure. Sure. So, I mean, you know, a couple things. So similar to Ari, you know, we've launched our clinical trial back in 2011. We did the same exact thing. You know, urology was involved in terms of being an investigator, uh, not only on the clinical study, but actually seeing and evaluating every patient that we uh, were enrolling and even screening for that fact. Um, And and similarly, um, now, almost invariably all patients who come to us, even through primary care, have been evaluated by urology um, in some form or another. Um, and I think that is, that is, it is important. Um, I wouldn't say that it's an absolute. Um, okay. The same goes for um, anything that we do as interventional radiologists. We oftentimes sell ourselves short as not being able to say manage uh, clinical medicine. Okay. And with, say, for example, uh, a urologic patient, depending on the community you're practicing in, many urologic disorders, specifically BPH, for example, are managed wholly by internal medicine physicians and family practice physicians and really only referred to urologists when there's a need for surgical intervention. And whether it's in medical management, workup, um, evaluation, et cetera, it is important, I think, for interventionalists to really feel comfortable and knowledgeable about the entire BPH spectrum and how to manage a patient, whether medical therapy, watchful waiting, whether it's uh, lifestyle modification. And I think that the more you feel comfortable managing a BPH patient as a whole, um, the less you may rely uh, on a patient to see a urologist. And that that doesn't imply that there should not be a collaborative uh, network or framework for how you build a PA practice. But what's important to take away from that, I think, is that interventional radiologists are capable of managing these patients um, both independently and with the, with the help of both urology and, and primary care. Um, and so I think that's an important concept for interventionalists to really get a hold of. Absolutely. Now, now Sonny, the risk of oversimplification, uh, you know, is there a typical type of patient, you know, that you see pretty frequently that, you know, the ones that get referred to you for this procedure? Yeah, so the ones that typically get referred are really the ones like Ari mentioned that we go out and actually uh, promote to be either urologists or primary care doctors that we should be seeing. And those are the patients like Ari mentioned, the patients who had a recent MI, they're on Plavix, for example, they're not going to get a transurethral procedure for that reason. Um, the patients who have a very large prostate or have some contraindication to surgery, general anesthesia, et cetera. Those are the types of patients who I think are fairly typical from the referred patient, you know, the patients that other doctors are seeing and saying, hey, this would be great for PAE because their traditional transurethral surgery may not be ideal for them. Okay. Um, the other patient population that comes to interventionalists, and I think as the procedure becomes more widely recognized, um, will be directly referred patients. And those patients who come direct to interventionalists, they're a different patient population because they themselves are seeking out an alternative option, which is very different from someone, of course, who comes by way of their physician. And so that type of patient population is someone who's much more inquisitive, asks numerous questions, would love to have comparative, uh, you know, comparative data and or just uh, a good understanding of how PAE compares to sure. other typical procedures. So they're a much more inquisitive bunch. And I think that's um, how to handle those these two different patient populations 
um, is actually, you know, it's an important skill to, to learn. Now, for both of you, and starting with you again, Sonny, um, you know, after the procedure is over, uh, do you see these patients afterward in clinic? And if so, when? Yeah, so our first follow-up with these patients is at two weeks after the procedure. Um, and if they're a local patient, we have them come back in the office. And if they're more remote or for some convenience factor, we do follow-up by telephone. And then again, at four weeks. And then following that, it's usually three months, six months, and then yearly after that. And the reason for that is after about a four-week period, we generally will see uh, that patients have had a significant improvement from the procedure. And from then on out, we want to be involved very closely in terms of managing their medication, uh, evaluating them to see um, you know, if they should have ever a recurrence or how, how significantly their symptoms have been improved. Okay. Ari, is your system similar? Uh, I think so. So uh, like Sunny was saying, if the patient has come, uh, you know, there's a good uh, percentage of patients that see me that are coming from far away. So for those patients, we follow up by phone. Um, for the patients that were referred to me by, by UNC Urology, I have them follow up at the, with UNC Urology. So I send them back there and, and usually it's one or two providers that, that send me the, the patients and they kind of know the things that I'm, I'm looking for and they, and I, I they, send me a notification right away when they see the patient so I know how the patient's doing. If the patient uh, was sent to me by a urologist outside of UNC, I'll, I'll, see back, I'll see the patient back myself in my clinic. So that's kind of my algorithm. Okay. Um, you know, now, I know this is different because, you know, due to your level of experience, you're, you're going to be less reliant on something like that. But uh, for pre-procedure CTA, you know, which kind of patients are you still doing these for? So I'll I'll speak first about that. Um, as far as um, I, let me give you a little history of this, and and I'll tell you where I'm at with it. Okay. Uh, initially, I got CTA on everybody, and that's just because I think when you're starting out with PAE, one of the biggest challenges is uh, the anatomy and determining where the origin of the prostatic artery is. And I wanted to give myself I, I'm not the smartest guy. Let's just put it that way. So I wanted to give myself the best opportunity to figure out what was going on. And so that, that meant having images the night before, looking at them, studying them, figuring out what approaches I was going to use. And I was pretty meticulous as far in doing that in, in that I would, I would create 3D rendered images and I would figure out what, what angle with the II I wanted to see the origin of the prostatic arteries the best. And I'd create like this kind of a map for myself. Um, as I started to grow in confidence with more volume of PAEs, uh, I tried to make the experience a little more convenient for the uh, patients. And since most of them were at that time were coming from out of town and I have to say, I'll give credit to Sonny. This was Sonny's idea. I don't know if he remembers, but way back um, he said, why don't you just do a cone beam CTA? And I said, all right, let's, let's see what we can do with that. So we came up with a cone beam CTA protocol. And what that allowed us to do was basically get the same CTA information, um, but do it on the table prior to the actual procedure and so that, pre that prevented the need for the patient to come the day before and get a CTA, and uh, it reduced some added expense. And so that's kind of my practice these days. I'm, I'm just doing cone beam CTAs ahead of time. Unless there's a patient I'm particularly concerned about, if I think they have bad atherosclerotic disease for some reason, um, or you know, if there's some other vascular issue that I'm concerned about, I, I will get a CTA. But the majority of the patients, I'm, I'm doing cone beam CTA just on the table prior to the procedure. Now, do both modalities tend to give uh, fairly equivalent uh, anatomic information? For example, you know, can you see 
shunts, for example, uh, you know, in both modalities? It's funny you ask that, Mike. Uh, we, we have a paper coming out in JVA <laughs> shortly. Um, but You're welcome. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, we, we did a comparison between our conventional CTAs and our cone beam CTAs to look at um, kind of, we, we looked at it two ways, objectively and subjectively. Um, objectively, you know, we were looking um, at the degree of enhancement within the vessels. Um, and then subjectively, uh, we had a couple reviewers look at the, if they could determine the prostatic arteries and we had a grading scale for it. So the way it came out was the, actually the objective measurements were better for cone beam CTA, believe it or not. Um, but the subjective measurements, there was no significant difference. Although in my opinion, I think you do see the arteries better um, on the cone beam CTAs. Okay. Uh, what, what you lose on cone beam CTAs, though, are some of the soft tissue information. Yeah, so it's funny, you know, in, in listening back to Ari's conversation, evolution from going from, you know, the preoperative CT to CTA, he told that story really well. And I, and I still, um, to this day, um, find myself uh, identifying certain shunts depending on how hard I even inject the prostatic artery with the microcatheter, you know, in the syringe. So I find that there's so much variability in just day-to-day PAE practice um, that it's, it's very hard almost scientifically to prove, um, you know, what we will see better with certain techniques versus others. Um, as you probably know, and I mentioned, you know, I mentioned to Aaron um, not too long ago, it was just the other day actually, was that I, I, don't, I don't firmly believe that cone beam is of really of significant value. It takes a lot to say that, I'll be honest, because over the years, having sat on panels where uh, my colleagues have said, you know, you should just tell everybody that it's great to use in the beginning, you have to use it. Um, I'm a pretty traditional diagnostic angiography type of person, and maybe that's just being simple-minded of looking at, you know, these are the six, seven, eight arteries you need to be able to identify. Um, and I think when I feel really comfortable with a good digital subtraction in geography, I can not only identify the prostate, but also really well identify much of the flow dynamics and collaterals that I don't feel like I will get during, you know, a static image for, per se, like a, like a cone beam CTA or CTA or cone beam CT. Um, and we published on this a, year, a number of years ago that while cone beam CTA does improve, cone beam CT does improve your confidence level in identifying other collateral vessels it also does lead to a significant number of false positives. Uh, and so I think, you know, taking in mind the good and bad with cone beam CT, overall, if I had to start over, and frankly, we did do this in the very beginning, is we just did the procedure with, with good DSA. And, you know, we use really the cone beam to confirm, but really, frankly, relied mostly on, on the subtraction and geography. Now, Sonny, I'm interested to hear if you use cone beam in the same way as Ari. You know, my vast experience of one day with Ari, what really blew me away was uh, how he was able to take the images uh, obtained on cone beam CT and and create these uh, just immaculate uh, rotating, basically, uh, roadmaps that that allowed very easy identification of the the proper obliquity to to catheterize the prostatic artery. And, and that's really where I'd wasted a lot of my time in the past. Are you doing the same thing? Yeah, no, I, you know, not for a number of reasons. One is I think that they, while they do produce great images, I think that, you know, one of the things you get from a selective run, for example, the hypogastric artery is that dynamic image. 
And that dynamic image is very important for flow dynamics. And oftentimes I think if you get a roadmap, for example, from, you know, which is not dynamic and you go and try and get all the way from A to position A to position Z, sometimes the problem is you can, you can overlook or bypass another vessel, which may have a different, you know, if you will, flow dynamic than the target vessel you've identified. And so we don't do that, although I do appreciate the pretty images, and I'll admit I use many of Ari's images for my lectures because they always are, they're always good showstoppers. Um, you know, we don't tend to do that. We tend to just really just focus on subtraction. Now, um, what about access site selection, you know, radial versus yeah. femoral? How do you make that decision? I know that there are people who are hoping you say always femoral and people are saying always radial, but my guess is that the, the truth lies in the middle. Yeah, I, I think it does. And I think, um, and I've had this conversation already many times as well. I think it's it's really an individualized approach. I mean, some patients, of course, want what they want, right? So that they want femoral access, for example, or radial access, then it is reasonable, of course, to respect their opinion. However, with a good discussion about what the risks, benefits, and alternatives, of course, are with each access point. So at least with myself, having done them both femoral and radial and not having maybe the radial experience that Ari has, particularly with PAE, but with other procedures, we, we typically make our decision based on not just patient preference, uh, but really based on a number of other things. Like, for example, the patient's height, uh, patient having significant other risk factors for vascular disease, so we're not putting them at significantly increased risk of stroke. Um, but invariably, I would say the vast majority of patients, we still choose to, to perform it femorally. And the reason why is because, honestly, the system works well for us. We don't run into a situation and we have to convert somebody from ephemeral access to another type of access. The procedure time is, is very reasonable, meaning under 90 minutes, for example, to have the procedure done. Um, while they won't be ambulating for two hours anyways uh, after the procedure from ephemeral access, they generally are kept anyways for at least an hour for moderate sedation. So... All in all, I mean, we tend to have a system that works well with femoral access. I'm not necessarily against radial access, but I think that it does come with certain challenges that, of course, I mean, I think Ari here would probably be perfect to address what those are. Now, Ari, you told me that the height limit, if I'm not mistaken, was 5'11", or is it 5'10"? I tend to use 5'11". That's okay. fine. So from either access, femoral or radial, you know, what do you include in your standard diagnostic assessment uh, for PAE? Um, are, you, are you talking about your like pre clinical? Yeah, yeah. Pre clinical. No, I mean you know in, in your DSA you get a catheter in. You know what what do you consider complete imaging before you know going down and selecting the artery and treating? Oh, I see. Okay, um, so my uh, I'm kind of a belt and suspenders type of person. So that means that I want to see where the prosthetic origin is um, on a CTA or or comium CTA, but then I want to confirm that with angiography. And so I'll put a catheter into the uh, internal iliac and try to position it. Ideally, I'd love to position it where I'm just seeing the anterior division, but sometimes that's not possible. Um, and then I'll do a hand run from there, um, a okay. pretty robust hand run. Um, and, um, and I'll try to hold it out until I can uh, make out the prostate. Um, and usually that is adequate. The, the problem with that, and I think you alluded to it earlier, Mike, is that some, you can often, you know, most of the, and I say almost all the time, you can see the prosthetic artery pretty easily with a with that run. But sometimes it's hard to see the angulation in which the orifice of that artery arises. Okay. 
And so that's kind of the challenge that I find. And I, I think Sonny's really good at, at that because he's done so much of this type of uh, angiography. But that really, that gives me challenge, a challenge is a lot of times to, to catheterize it. So I kind of like having the combined information of seeing um, what, ha- what angle the origin comes off of and also having the ang- angiography as well. So Ari, you know, you found your target artery and you found the angle. What do you typically use to select it? Yeah, so um, my uh, so it kind of depends if you're asking femoral or radial. Um, my catheters I tend to use, microcatheters I tend to use are either a prograde, um, a direction, or a sniper catheter. Those are the kind of three that I tend to use. And my my initial wire that I start with is a, a Fathom 014. Yeah, I um, so my typical go to catheter is probably very similar to Ari or uh, the prograde catheter 2.4. I may use the 2.0 in, in very smaller, small glands, like for example, less than 55 cc's or so. Um, and the direction catheter I typically use with like reverse angled origin uh, prostatic arteries because it's a very nice pre-shaped catheter. And then as far as go-to wires, I'll use, you know, really the, the double angle glide wire. I think I w- works in the majority of cases. And then if that doesn't work, I really, my secondary wire is really an 014 transcend wire. Okay. Uh, now, you know, you guys have... Uh, provided us with uh, plenty of reading material on the different catheters you can use, uh, you know, including the Swift Ninja. I know Ari, you told me uh, you like the sniper catheter to minimize non-target embolization. Um, you know, what is your algorithm from going to, you know, a different catheter? So I, I guess the, the first thing is from, from radial, you, you have lesser choices, right? So from, you need a catheter that's at least 150 centimeters. And so you're looking at a prograde or direction. There's a maestro that's available. Um, there's a Cook Cantata. So there's a bunch of different microcatheters that are available for that. Um, I tend to, you know, initially I think when I started, um, I really liked the direction a lot because of the angulation, obviously, and it kind of helped. Um, but I think since then I've come to rely more on my wire skills uh, to get into some some harder uh, uh, harder arteries. Um, and so I'll start with the prograde, which is straight. Uh, as far as the, from the femoral, I've been using the sniper a lot lately. And I don't, and this isn't something that I recommend everyone go out and start using because it is a whole different kind of concept. It's a balloon occlusion catheter. Um, and it, it changes flow and, and we're not, you know, I, I have some experience with it. And so I kind of know what I'm looking for and doing. So I think it's not quite ready for everyone to put their hands on and start using quite yet, but I think there's some potential there that we could demonstrate the uh, some benefit of using balloon occlusion and for PAE. Okay, let's take a step back to where we, you know we've we've just uh, selected the prostatic artery, and you know there's no way we can get through all the uh, anatomic complexities and everything like that. Um, but generally, what are you looking for to allow you to treat at this point, and you know what findings might lead you to change your plan? So. Um, the patients that that I get excited about, I'll t- start with that, are, are patients with really large glands. So patients with like 80, 80 cc's and above, um, those are I consider those those pretty large. Um, and I like younger uh, younger men who may not have as bad atherosclerotic disease, so that's helpful. Also, as as men grow older, I, I think the um, the arteries tend to become a little more tortuous. Uh, which can can hurt you as well. If the, I think the number one thing that can make PAE really tough is having very tortuous pelvic arteries like the iliac arteries, because if you have to wind through some pelvic tortuosity, it 
it takes away some of your control of your diagnostic mm-hmm. catheter. Um, so, so those are the things that um, I guess initially uh, that I get excited about. The things that uh, patients that I would consider not doing. First of all, I would strongly, strongly warn people about attempting this on people who are known vasculopaths. It's just you're setting yourself up for for badness. Um, what in particular do you mean by a vasculopath? Like what yes. you can do in it. So one screening question that I ask people is, um, have you ever had any issues with claudication? Have you ever had a bypass graft in your leg? Have you ever any stenting in your legs? Things like that. Um, if any of those, if they say yes to any of those, I, I'm, I'll get some imaging first, but I'm leaning towards not, not doing a PAE on them. Um, the, the other thing I would say is if they have a small gland, um, and I say small, it's probably like less than 50 cc's, so somewhere in the 30s or 40s, and a pretty prominent median lobe, that worries me um, okay. because I feel like uh, we can't get enough um, effic- action on the median lobe itself to, um, to alleviate the, the urinary symptoms. When the, when the prostate's larger, globally larger, uh, you affect the lateral lobes a lot as well as the median lobe, and I think you can get a better effect. But when it's already a smaller prostate to begin with, I worry about those patients. Okay. Uh, now, Sonny, uh, let's get into uh, the embolic agents that you use for a second. Uh, tell us what you use, what's your endpoint, and how Lumi beads might be able to change uh, you know, how you embolize the gland. Sure. So, you know, over the years, and I think early on, we were using beads, and back in 2011, 12, we were using beads that uh, started out in size around 250 micron, um, and we were then, you know, finishing with embolic that was in the 400 micron size. Okay. And we were using embozine, which at the time was made by Cellnova. Um, you know, we still use embozine. However, we have gone smaller in size about three, three, three to four years ago, switched to a smaller size, starting almost invariably at the 100 micron size and then upsizing um, as we as we reach stasis. And the reason why we did that is because Early on, we saw a large number of, not large, but a relatively uh, disproportionate number of early recurrences. And whether it was just our feeling or not, we just felt as if we didn't get enough uh, tissue ischemia and deep penetration uh, with those beads. There's no doubt that smaller beads cause more ischemia, but they, of course, come at a risk of uh, potential non-target embolization. And so as long as we were comfortable with the angiogram and felt that there was no significant risk for non-target embolization in terms of flow dynamics and appearance on the angiogram, then we invariably, even in very large glands, start with smaller size beads and then upsize accordingly so that we can, you know, take out what we consider primary, secondary, and tertiary branches within the prostate. Okay. Now, assuming you're not using the, uh, the perfected technique, you know, what, what is your endpoint typically? Yeah. So, you know, generally, so think a little one quick thing on perfected is, you know, I I would say from time to time we do use it. I think that um, overall though, however, if you're using a smaller bead size, it really achieves the same effect that you would from perfected because of course you're going to get more distal penetration with a smaller bead than you would larger. Um, And invariably the perfected technique is not necessarily feasible on a good number of patients, whether 30 to 40% of patients, just because the tortuosity of the vessel and being able to advance your catheter. So our, we place our catheter really at the prostatic capsule, if not closer, and we embolize really to complete stasis. You know, it's a patient long-standing okay. embolization. Um, but there's no doubt when you're doing a prostatic embolization, you're really aiming to take out the whole organ more than you are, you know, just like an HCC, for example, taking out a small liver tumor within a very large liver. 
in, in terms of shunts and, you know, unexpected perfusion of, uh, you know, the, the rectum or the bladder, what, what findings there are okay to go ahead and treat? Yeah, I mean, not that I want to plug stream, but I'm going to use this opportunity to do so, is that, and, you know, I think that obviously I, myself and Ari can cover um, a number of these things. Like, of course, there's invariably myself and Ari, and I'm sure I could speak for him comfortably with this, is we would, of course, feel more uncomfortable having non-target embolization to penile uh, penile arteries versus, say, rectal arteries, just because one would be invariably noticeable to the patient versus the other. And so, uh, but that being said, there are so many variations of potential non-target embolization that have to be addressed during the procedure. And something that we see every week, I will tell you, even like Ari said, I'm excited about seeing a large gland. I mean, just on Friday and doing a large gland embolization, you know, you, go, you walk in, you're all confident and you end up with a, you know, potential non-target site that you have to deal with. And that happens in even the simplest of cases. And so there's such variability here. I don't know that it would be easily uh, summarizable. I don't know if Ari, you have a different opinion. Yeah, so I think the, the, the thing that you need to keep in mind, especially people who are new to PAE and are, or are considering starting, is that there are these extra prostatic anastomoses in nearly every case. And if you don't see it initially, if you do the, another angiogram after partial embolization of the prostate, you'd probably see it. Um, and so... You do have to be cognizant of that, and so you can't. I, I, I think if you, if you just, if you don't look for the shunts and you just embolize to stasis, and you're using smaller particles, you're going to get yourself in trouble. And so, um, and so, it's important to do good angiography and and identify the shunts ahead of time and come up with a good management plan. And again, Sunny and I will talk about uh, you know the different options for managing those types of things at stream. Um, but in general, like Sonny said, penile shunts, penile collaterals are, are the, the scariest. Um, the last thing you want to do is give a patient, you know, a, a skin lesion on their penis or cause them to have less erectile function than they had before. Um, and that's definitely something that can deter one man or a bunch of men from wanting to have a PAE. Okay. Uh, if, if you have non-target to the rectum, the rectum is, as you know, is a very very vascular organ. And um, you may get some short-term hematochesia, but uh, most of the time that resolves within the first week or two. And usually there's no other sequela of that. So, um, you know, at all costs, avoid embolizing the penis. <laughs> but uh, but um, I would also, you know, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say don't embolize the rectum either unless you have to, or, or and if you do do it with larger, larger particles. Now, of course, we don't have time to get into all the complications, but focusing on uh, acute urinary retention, which appears to be the most common, when do you see this and how do you manage it? So I would say that I don't see acute urinary retention. Are you, are you talking about post-PAE? Was that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I would say that I don't see it quite that often. You know, I mean, all of the Chinese studies tend to report acute urinary retention at a higher rate than the studies out of Europe and U.S. and South America. And I, I think it's because they tend to use smaller particles. Um, and, and they also tend to hospitalize their patients for several days or a week after the procedure. And I'm not sure if that, what the hospitalization has to do with it. It might just be the smarter, smaller particles. But the, I only see acute urinary retention um, when patients are already kind of on the brink of it. For example, if they've, okay. come, if they've already had like two or three episodes of needing a catheter to urinate, um, I'm very 
concerned about that patient, and I'll usually catheterize that patient ahead of time. Uh, the rest of the patients I don't catheterize. And so I guess the management is that if you have a patient like that that is either in acute urinary retention or has been and had you know several episodes of it previously, we'll place a Foley ahead of time. And then we have the patient follow-up um, probably two weeks after the procedure uh, if, it's, if that's okay, acceptable to them. Sometimes they want to come back a week afterward, which um, I'm, I think it's, they're probably less likely to pass a trial avoid at that point, but I try to accommodate their needs as best I can. So either a week or two weeks after the procedure, we do a trial avoid. If it doesn't come out then, they come back two weeks later and we try again. And that's kind of how we go until we get the catheter up. So then what do you tend to see more frequently? As far as post-PAE complications Mm -hmm. or adverse events? Yeah. Um, So I would say the most common thing you're going to see is what I would consider post-PAE syndrome, uh, which would include uh, urinary urgency frequency, um, some degree of dysuria. Uh, Some patients will have some degree of pressure or pain in the pelvis. Those are probably the most frequent things. Um, And then the other things that you'll see sometimes, rarely or not as, not as frequently as those others is uh, hematuria, hematochesia, hematospermia, um, and um, uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, that's, that's the great thing about this procedure is that there are, the side effects are, are pretty mild and, and rare. Particularly in comparison to the complications of surgical management. Um, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so in the interest of time, I, you know, I think I was going to run through one more question before we really start to get into stream. Uh, and this came from one of our Twitter followers who asked, uh, you know, mainly just about the current status of insurance coverage and reimbursement for the procedure, which we touched on briefly at the beginning. Sure, I'll, I can speak about this in the Chapel Hill area and then Sonny could talk about it in, up in Virginia. Um, we are pretty much still, we're pretty much having problems with all private payers uh, reimbursing at this point. We're working on some negotiations with them to try to work out a, a deal so that we can treat uh, more patients. But right now, um, insurance is an issue for us. What about you, Sonny? Yeah, so we're having, uh, Mike, we're having a, a probably a little bit better road, I think, than Ari is. Um, a number of the private payers pay um, you know, for PAE. And there's no doubt that in some of my peer-to-peer reviews with some of the physicians on the other end, um, having an FDA-approved product has swayed them in terms of the willingness to uh, approve the procedure. It does, of course, require a, you know, oftentimes a, a peer-reviewed, uh, or sorry, a peer-to-peer conversation with the insurance company. Um, I think that's, it's been a challenge. But the major carriers d- uh, definitely do have some policies against uh, PAE. And I think that that is unfortunately a Achilles heel that will not be overcome very easily. Um, and I think it will unfortunately limit really widespread adoption. Um, and I think it's going to take a number of years, frankly, before um, that that changes, I think, you know, more universally. Okay. Um, well, look, guys, you know, this is been an exceptional summary of how you guys approach PAE, but I'd like to devote the remainder of our time uh, to your upcoming conference. Um, you put together a remarkable program, both in terms of content and contributors, and the timing is also convenient because it's a one-day conference on a Saturday, which is much more manageable for people uh, in, in full-time positions, and it's a very reasonable fee. Now, I was hoping you could just tell us more about the purpose of the conference and what it offers for IRs at various levels of experience for PAE. 
Yeah. So um, what Sunny and I aimed to do was to create uh, try to create a as robust of a one day program as we could. And it's really for um, people who are either just at the very beginning of their PAE practice or considering starting their PAE practice. And we really wanted to cover it from all angles. We didn't want to just do, you know, what catheters and wires are you using or what kind of imaging do you have to get ahead of time. But we wanted to also look at it from a legal standpoint, from a a, a program building standpoint. We wanted to have urologists speak. Um, We wanted to have... um, some time to for just people to to do question and answers with us individually, and so we really tried to build um, a curriculum that uh, will leave uh, an attendee um, with the confidence that they have a good foundation for going back and starting a PAE program. You know, when you I feel like, and I'm sure Ari feels to some degree this is true, when you go to other meetings which are dedicated to a wide variety of topics, you don't really leave you know, feeling trained on PAE. You may feel like you got an update on the literature, a little bit about anatomy, a little bit about what's coming next. But really, in order for people to leave well-trained and feel comfortable, I think you really have to cover a wide variety of, of topics. Um, and so even down to whether or not the procedure is performed in an outpatient lab versus a hospital, um, we have, you know, M&M cases where we share our complications um, I think all of these things will allow whoever comes uh, really to leave with that degree of confidence that that we want. Because ultimately, myself and Ari really want this to be very widely adopted, not just safely with with great outcomes, but we want the physicians who are performing the interventionists to really be the leaders in the field uh, performing this procedure. Gentlemen, is there anything else you guys would like to add? Did I say stream was going to be strong this year? <laughs> it's going to be so strong. <laughs> Gonna be very strong. It'll be a, be a big relief when it's over. Yeah. It will be a relief for both of us. That'll be the name once of in the morning. Relief. <laughs> that's right. Once in the morning, and that's it. No more getting up. Um, <laughs> well, Ari and Sunny, look. Let me take this opportunity to offer my profound gratitude to both of you for joining us today. This has been uh, an enlightening discussion with invaluable content for IRs of all levels of training. Um, and I look forward to seeing you both at stream. And for listeners, thanks for sticking with me for another episode. We're thankful for your support. And we're always interested in feedback about what you want to hear and what we can do better. Uh, reach out to us on Twitter using the handle at underscore backtable. We'll catch you on the next one.